Ding, 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 ding. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of The podcast in which a group of The podcast in which a group of B-Side. Welcome back to B-Side. I'm Tom here, and today we're going to be talking about A Quiet Place, and this is the John Krasinski movie from... What year was it? 2018. And in this film, if you don't remember the plot, it follows a dystopian future in which blind, senseless creatures attack Earth and kill everyone. The only sense they do have, so I guess they're not entirely senseless, but the only sense they do have is sound. And we follow the Abbott family who have been living for the last year and a half or so on a farm and they are um they, they have a their eldest daughter is hearing impaired so everybody happens to know sign language and that becomes their advantage in the picture the uh the wife and head of the family mrs abbott uh played by emily blunt is pregnant and so a lot of attention is centered around the anticipation of this birth so if I follow my dystopia taxonomy, this world follows the anarchy model. Uh, I had said it before in previous B-sides, there is, in my kind of worldview, um, or my reading of anarchy literature, and uh, dystopian literature, rather, in dystopian literature we have the totalitarian worldview, which usually breaks down into 1984 or Brave New World, either it's the boot in the face, or you're being um, surfeited with pleasure so that you're no longer a thinking person. And then an alternative to this is usually a kind of zombie apocalypse in which the structures of order have completely fallen away and you have anarchy. And so you could think of The Walking Dead as part of that. And in this world, we really have an anarchy model. The creatures have destroyed everything and there's only these kind of little local groups and actually, we only see one of those little local groups in this film. Um, in the, the sequel to this picture, we see more, but here we only see the Abbott family. Um, anarchy models tend to follow Hobbes. They tend to be much more war of all against all. That's Hobbes' famous quote from his early 1650s book, Leviathan, where we need a great and strong, powerful central state. Otherwise, everybody will be violent towards one another, and we need this sort of hierarchy at the center of society in order to maintain society. Here, the anarchy is a problem because these creatures are deadly and kill everyone and no one can stop them. However, we don't see the sort of war of all against all. In fact, the human behavior in this picture tends to be quite benevolent. It's really a family story and a family struggle, a loving and good family. We don't have a dangerous leader or some sort of um, humanity that's been reduced to an angry animal craven state. Um, here we have this sort of Jeffersonian independent family farm. Survival requires self-sufficiency found in the family unit. In 1776, Jefferson's Constitution for the State of Virginia apportioned 50 acres of land for each man who lacked that amount of land. 
And a few months later, Jefferson wrote a bill for Virginia abolishing land primogeniture and royalist means of holding privilege, therefore presumably allowing more land to more people. For Jefferson, the cultivation of land allowed for personal sovereignty. This is why he was trying to um, separate royalist and British claims on land so that more people can have land and more people then can therefore have personal sovereignty. They can grow their own food. They can survive on their own. They're not reliant on a central system. And while that's a little different from what we're seeing in A Quiet Place, we are seeing this independent, self-sufficient family farm as this agrarian solution to the destruction of society. So the, these creatures have come in and have destroyed society, and it's this return to the farm that has allowed these people to survive. The horror of this film operates simply and ruthlessly. Sound is human, but sound kills. And so through their familiarity with American Sign Language, the Abbott family is able to both be human, they're, they're using a, a real language in order to communicate. Um, this is something they've developed in order to, uh, in order to help a, their, their daughter who has a disability. Um, and so while sound kills, this family has really kind of almost been given a solution to that problem. And so while sound is human, here silence is also human because silence still permits them to communicate, right? As, as richly as they would if, if they could verbalize. Um, and so this kind of psychological horror pits survival instinct against survival instinct. Fear sparks screams, screams provoke the monsters. And so a lot of the tension here is if you're frightened or if you're in pain at one point, um, Emily Blunt's character steps on a nail and she has to keep utterly quiet because otherwise the monsters will get here. And that's the kind of psychological horror here, right? Because it, it psychological horror works by pitting different survival instincts against each other. For me, I'd say the, the sentimentality of the film irritates. Um, most of that's on John Krasinski. He's a, he's a really good actor, but there is a bit of... Uh, it's a bit much, I would say, what he does with the, with the performance. Um, his, his character, Lee, is an effective father. He's a good leader of this little clan. He indulges these... He doesn't indulge, excuse me. He has these utilitarian concerns, such as fishing, farming, guarding against the monsters. Um, and though he is responsible for all these tasks, they don't hinder his effort to uh, express himself to his children. He and his daughter have a bit of a falling out. It's unclear whether or not he blames his daughter for the death of his youngest child at the hands of the monsters. Um, but there's a bit of tension in the relationship at this point. Now, when he takes his son Marcus to a waterfall, um, and allows him to yell, allows him to kind of scream because the water blocks the sound so the monsters don't don't notice. Um, this is when Marcus and Lee are able to have a heart-to-heart. -heart. They're actually able to, to verbalize, and Marcus asks him, do you blame her for, for the death of, of the youngest child? Um, and it's also another kind of sentimental moment. 
And the idea here is that eventually we see that, um, that Lee obviously doesn't blame his daughter. His daughter's name is Millicent, his daughter who's hearing impaired. And what we learn in the end is that he has actually this entire time been working on um, improving a hearing aid for her. So not only does he not blame her, he's still actively working to, to improve her life. And this hearing aid, it, it doesn't really work, but it creates a high-pitched high frequency which ends up killing the monsters. So it becomes this sort of thing, this, this love, this expression of affection he has for his family also becomes the weapon against the monsters, right? So we still have this idea of the family unit as that which provides sovereignty and safety. Ultimately, it's a return to the family that allows for the the survival of people, the safety of people. And therefore, this vision of fatherhood feels far more conservative, um, pre-modern, without necessarily protesting modernity. It doesn't feel like it's it's raising its fist against anything in particular. It's just a family story, right? And it has those values. Um, Emily Blunt's Evelyn, that her her character is Evelyn Abbott. She raises her children to be fully formed, fully thinking people. Her heritage is rugged individualism. This is what she has to pass on. I mean, what else could she pass on in this world? The spirit of survival is the most important capital. And that spirit is what this movie is about. That kind of rugged individualism, being able to hold out on your own against the odds and persevere is what we see demonstrated in this picture. Now, I was surprised to learn that this film had engendered some controversy around its perceived themes. The argument, as I understand it, that came from some, maybe some more conservative sources, is that the silence this traditional family has to endure is a metaphor for quote-unquote cancel culture, which is this, this awful little phenomenon in which hordes of angry people demand someone lose his or her job, or lose his or her opportunity to speak at an event for um, some sort of real or perceived infraction. Uh, now, while I do think there's kind of a Jeffersonian agrarian element in this film, agrarian element in this film, as I mentioned before, I do have trouble finding more evidence for this cancel culture reading of the picture. While horror and sci-fi are great vehicles for debating social issues, it's often the case that the social issues are a little more apparent or a little more obvious. We could see this in George Romero's Living Dead series, which exemplifies really the horror movie as social commentary. The first picture in that series, Night of the Living Dead from 1968, clearly targets racism. The film ends with a collection of photograph. Uh, the film ends with a collection of photographs of the police burning the body of a wrongly killed black man. Romero's second picture in the series, The Dawn of the Dead, from 1978, aims its reanimated corpses at consumerism, as evidenced in the film in which we see zombies roaming around a mall. Most of the movie takes place in a mall. And we could see the zombies looking at products and exhibiting behaviors that, as one character says, was familiar from life. The third... Day of the Living Dead, this is from 1985, takes place on a military base. 
and it features a number of army men behaving badly. In all three examples, Romero offers numerous clues as to how the plot connects to the social commentary he wishes to make, from the visuals to the dialogue to the situations themselves. Horror movies, by being somewhat underwhelming in terms of acting, writing, and style, often make room for other influences, such as social illusions, commentary, philosophy, etc. The illusion is not so thick in such films as to make the commentary of them difficult to digest. But with a film like A Quiet Place, added social commentary would probably be ill-advised. The acting is tremendous and, as uh, Ragnar mentioned in his notes, uh, and I, I think in the podcast as well, uh, the cinematography glows with a collection of yellows and oranges ranging from the sunset to the fire to the sand coating the ground. I think the political would rend these bits of beauty. Um, they would, would just tear it apart um, with a tendency towards assertion, demonization, and righteous failing. Rarely does commentary fail to do such damage. And I think that Krasinski probably wisely avoided that in this picture. And I think if we were to say that this was a metaphor for, for cancel culture, I think there would be need to be a few more clues uh, nestled in the picture. However, there is a, as I said before, kind of a spirit of rugged individualism. There is a sense that a return to the farm, a return to the family, a return to a small unit of self-government or self-governance is really what keeps us safe, what keeps us together, and what allows us to survive in difficult and trying times. Now, hopefully we'll never encounter trying times as difficult as this, though, though COVID has become a sort of um, a, a sort of parallel horror show one could say but i would say those are more the themes than anything specifically directed at cancel culture or or anything like that yeah. thank you very much this has been tom with b-side